Our state-by-state -state look at coronavirus trends is more encouraging this Sunday. Welcome to the Alt-Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. The wildfires that have devastated parts of Australia. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future at the intersection of self, community, and planet. We live in uncertain times, a powerful moment of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Auto's reached the transport site. Trying to lock on. Five, four, three. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. We are live at Zest, a plant-based restaurant here in Ubud, Bali. Yeah, my name is Tiffany, and I will be the host of the show, The Alt Normal, episode three. And before I introduce this beautiful goddess woman sitting next to me, I just want to center us and recap us on why we're here and what this show is all about. In these uncertain times, we know what we're talking about. Um, we are curious to amplify and explore the diverse voices of Bali, doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future um, at the intersection of self, community, and planet. In every crisis lies an opportunity to do something new, to do something better. And so we all have a part to play and how we steer um, our way forward together will shape the kind of alternative present and future that we can remake together. So really, really excited to be here with Bandana Tawari, our guest today. And I would like to introduce her because she has almost lived many different lives. Um, and so I want to share a little bit about her before we get into the conversation today. So Bandana Tawari is a lifestyle journalist and sustainability activist. Um, her resume is widely international and really impressive. Um, so I'll kind of make this as concise as possible. Uh, she writes for the business of fashion extensively on a variety of topics from indigenous made by hand uh, economies of India and Indonesia um, to transgender and LGBTQ representation in fashion. Um, for Peril Good Earth, her writing focuses on the ancient Indian wisdom of Vedanta. Uh, she also sits on several advisory boards around the world um, and is a TEDx speaker who travels globally speak at conferences about mindfulness in the luxury business um, with a special focus on Gandhi and fashion, which we're going to get all into today. As Vogue's former uh, editor at large for 13 years in India, Bandana was responsible for planning, visualizing, and ideating fashion features for the Ultimate Style Bible. Um, becoming one of India's foremost authorities on fashion and lifestyle. So her pieces have been appeared on almost all the well-regarded publications in the world. Um, so yeah, we're going to get into lots of rich, uh, juicy topics today about fashion and mindfulness. So yeah, welcome, Bandana. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you to anyone who's listening. 
I feel extremely grateful. So why don't we start kind of from the beginning? How did, yeah, the former editor at large of Vogue for 13 years end up here on the island of gods, which is what Bali is known for? Yes, it is indeed. I spent uh, 13 years in Vogue India in Bombay, a city bustling with more than 20 million people. And I loved my job. You know, it opened so many doors. I had such great opportunities to interview the best talents in the world. And without trying to sound boastful, I do feel proud to be able to say I sat face to face with Karl Lagerfeld and interviewed him or John Galliano or, or designers from all over the world. And to be at the forefront of talking with creative people, with not having the noise of fashion, the frills of fashion, which, which pervades my business to speak with real people with real talent, that was the opportunity that Vogue gave me. And for that, I'm really, truly grateful. But, you know, I'm from Nepal and I, I live in India for a long time. And so when you are working in the luxury business in India, it becomes a bit of a dichotomy in your life because on that very street that you are traveling to a Vogue office, for instance, you will see a multi-million, multi-millionaire's home and next to it is the slum. So living in India, you're constantly navigating the polarities of life, the rich and the poor, the vernacular and the English, you know, the high and the low. It is a country of contradictions. And working with Vogue and seeing the extreme luxury that uh, you're given to sort of peddle, to the world, I always wondered if someone can spend $5,000 on a fancy watch, I wonder if he thinks that money could do some social good if he used it elsewhere, because he's probably buying the 10th watch. And if he was going to use the same money to educate a small village or to give electricity to a small village for three months, five months, whatever it is, I wonder if you would understand what that value of money is. So this is just a personal realization that I had, nothing to do with that. I did not enjoy my job. Uh, I didn't talk about it much. Um, but yes, that sense of accountability became very, very important to me because the noise in my head constantly regurgitated this. And um, so when I decided to move to Bali, you can well imagine, you come here and you're surrounded by nature you're surrounded by a sense of mindfulness, you're walking barefoot, you're touching the earth, and then it starts resonating even more that what you're feeling can be actualized, that we should be living in a world where it matters that we talk about equality, that we talk about wealth creation and uh, a celebration of wealth, which feeds many, not just the few. And so I thought, you know, I want to be in the fashion business. I want to continue in it. But my path changed to sustainable fashion because sustainable fashion is what we talk about in Bali all the time. It's not just about fashion, but what we ingest in our bodies, uh, how we look after ourselves from within, and why not worry about what we put on our bodies every day of our lives. So I resigned from Vogue because it was clear I can't take with one hand and give from the other. So I had to leave my life of consumerism and move to mindfulness or rather conscious consumerism. So it was a very natural progress. Beautiful. I think I heard in one of your talks that you've 
seen, witnessed probably like 5,000 fashion shows over 13 years. That's a big number. And I guess when you were ready to really tune in and take the leap for your life and kind of uh, reset and, um, yeah, step forward into something new, into this conscious uh, way of living and way of understanding fashion, what did you see was like the biggest pain point or problem in the industry? On a very visceral level, in all honesty, going to fashion shows became so tedious because the one thing I realized was how undemocratic fashion had become. It was not meant for the many at all. It was defined by the fashion elite, defined by Western countries for the rest of the world. When I say Western countries, I mean affluent Western countries that would dictate to developing countries what the trends would be, how we should be consuming, Uh, forgetting that we have our own cultural heritage, that we have our own cultural provenance, our own sartorial history. And that was negated because we looked to Paris Fashion Week or we looked to Milan Fashion Week or New York or London as if there was only four cities in the world that could dictate to the rest of the world how we should be wearing and caring for our clothes. And uh, so we felt, as a brown woman coming from Asia and going to these citadels of fashion, you felt quite disconnected because we weren't speaking the language. Complete black was not my uniform. We are a land of color, of handmade embroideries. And so I felt like we had to set ourselves to a certain type of uniform that was dictated. And that's when you start thinking about identity and representation and where I come from and where millions of people come from who we cater to through our magazines and our websites. And are we doing justice to that narrative of fashion? Whose narrative are we regurgitating? Is it somebody else's that is quite alien to our culture? Or can I, as a writer, start creating a language where we can take ownership over our own regions? This is not to say that I don't enjoy the fact that there's certain things we love that is global, uh, that is perhaps homogenized. But I think COVID has reminded us, now that we are all stuck in boundaries uh, you know, and borders, that it's time to celebrate the difference. It's time to sort of deep dive into our own backyard, into our own culture, and see how we can relive and revive stories that we forgot in this mad rush for westernization, globalization, homogenization, where we all became one blob, an entity that looked the same wherever we went. I can buy the same T-shirt or the hoodie in Tokyo, in Jakarta, in Mumbai, in any country. But now let's talk about here we are stuck in COVID times within our own cultures. So what storytelling do we want through our clothes? So I think it's an exciting time to reset the fashion industry. Well said. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. So actually, this segues perfectly into the next question. So let's kind of fast forward to last year, 2019. You gave this amazing TED Talk in Ubud called What Gandhi Can Teach Us About Slow Fashion, bringing Gandhi, mindfulness, and fashion into the same sentence to talk about a path forward. around sustainability. So can you kind of reflect back on the pearls of wisdom from that talk and kind of center us on what are those things from the talk that you feel like are 
as relevant, if not even more relevant today during COVID times, bringing these concepts together. Right. For me personally, the journey into being a sustainable, a sustainability activist, which is predominantly influenced by Gandhi. In fact, when I moved to Bali, I was on the flight. And for some strange reason, Gandhi just popped up in my head. And I was thinking, how weird that we haven't been able to revisit his principles and can we revisit the principles in and apply it in the luxury business. And then when I started doing my research, there is such a compelling story between Gandhi and clothes. And that, in a very short form, I'm going to tell you, is Gandhi wanted, he started out wanting to be an English gentleman because it was a time when India was colonized by the British. So to look gentrified and wear three-piece suits was the thing. So he goes to London to study law, and they, all he wanted to be was belong there looking like an Englishman. Of course, he failed miserably and carried that pain for a while. When he goes to South Africa to practice law, he still is, a, you know, he's a gentleman there too. When he gets booted out of a train, even though he's wearing a suit and he has a first-class ticket, he realizes that in South Africa at the time, there were two types of Indians. The Indians that looked, who were academics and people who made money, and there were the indentured laborers who were not represented, who were marginalized by a very, very bigoted government. And when he got kicked out of the train and he notices a laborer called Bala Sundaram, who's been punched and beaten, holding his bleeding head, he looks at himself and thinks, I'm on the wrong path, that I do not understand the plight of the poor man. And look at me, what role am I playing? And that's when he gives up his suit, his Western attire, and wears what's called the kurta and the dhoti, which is the tunic and the sarong, both in white. And that change was an affirmation to say, my journey now is moving towards understanding the plight of the marginalized, of the poor in our societies. And so he starts developing all these principles, which we'll get to. But once he's done with South Africa and moves to India, which is in the throes of colonization, and from a very rich, thriving country, it had been brought to its knees because it was pillaged, robbed by the colonizers. And they killed the rural economy, the textile economy. And when he traveled to the, through the length and breadth of the country, he saw what plight India was in. And one of the reasons that India came to this state was related to cloth. That cloth is called khadi. It's a hand-spun, handmade fabric that was grown, produced, manufactured in abundance in India. There was no shortage of it. And that was a very thriving economy. But when the British colonizers decided that they were going to take all the cotton at very cheap price from India, ship them to the mills of Lancashire, different parts of England, turn them into what we perhaps call fast fashion today, send them back to India and sell them at high margins to Indians. It killed the economy. It killed the village economy. It killed the textile economy. So he started what's called the Khadi movement, where he literally told an entire nation to burn the clothes that are made in the factories of England and take up the spinning wheel and weave your own Khadi, your own cloth. And thousands and thousands of villages did just that. It played a huge role in the way India got her independence. But 
when he said burn all those clothes, he realized that the poorest of the poor didn't even have clothes to wear, leave alone, burn. And there he realized that he still did not understand what it means to be poor. And that's when he gives up his kurta, the tunic, and the dhoti, and starts wearing the loincloth, a small piece of khadi handwoven fabric, just to show the world that his moral compass is based on what he wears. So that is called sartorial integrity. So Gandhi literally had a journey from being a dandy to Gandhi through his clothes. And it's a very powerful uh, story that you can hardly see replicated in history where he used clothes to show his ideological turn. And it, that, that's the reason today when we think of Gandhi, we always think of him as a poor man, a man who could understand the plight of the poor. He went to England wearing a loincloth in, um, in winter to talk about independence with Winston Churchill. And Churchill looked at him and said, that half-naked fakir. Fakir, the poorest of the poor. And Gandhi took that as a compliment. He said, now you see, what I wear represents who I represent. So he took that as a compliment. So I find that story so powerful. I got, I was mesmerized by it. And so then I go on to his principles, which we can apply in the luxury business. And my favorite, and there are many, I'm only going to talk about one, is ahimsa, which means nonviolence. Nonviolence in thoughts, deeds, and actions. As an environmentalist, if we actually truly, truly imbibe that, nonviolence in thoughts, deeds, and actions, then it pervades everything that you do in life. It's not just about making clothes. It's not just about making objects. It's about how you live, how you eat, how you are with people, how you look at a tree, what you want to cut in your backyard. And so Gandhi himself said, ahimsa or nonviolence is not a garment that you put on and off at will. Its seat must be in the heart and it must remain there forever so. And so, you know, these are ideological shifts I'm talking about. There are hundreds and hundreds of in incredible people in the world who are brilliant activists. I'm just a novice in this, you know, and I give all the credit to them. But my little contribution is in invoking some sort of a personal responsibility for social change. Because when we talk about sustainability, it's such a wide topic. We always think somebody else is going to solve it for you, right? Because it's so vague. What do you mean? I think I'm sustainable because I'm vegan. I'm, so, but it's so much more than that. And we always think somebody else, a government will help us or an NGO is going to come and save the day. But if we say, I am going to take personal responsibility in the way I lead my life with the principles of Ahimsa, nonviolence in thoughts, deeds and actions, then I can actualize it, then I can live it. And that's exactly what Gandhi talked about. When you take personal responsibility, then it becomes collective and then there is social change and impact. Gandhi was such a true activist, but I think, yeah, now, especially during these times where systems are collapsing, um, people are questioning every level of society. And as you say, the word sustainability, it can be very far removed sometimes. Ah, someone else is going to take responsibility for that. Um, I'll just follow along when, when you know, the marker is clear. But 
what I hear you saying is that actually sustainability is within all of us if we choose to activate it. Um, and so, <clears throat> I mean, sustainability obviously has great meaning for you. Right. I'd love to unpack, especially in 2020, in this new decade, what does it mean to really be a sustainability activist? If we can dive even deeper. But first, ideologically and philosophically, you know, coming from the part of the world where Sanskrit and philosophy is pretty much everyday thing, you know, and there's a beautiful Sanskrit saying that says, Kutumbakam, Vasudeva Kutumbakam, which means the universe is your family. So imagine when children grow up with that idea. It's a pity it's not taught anymore. But if you grow up with that, so ideologically you start growing and inculcating habits and passions in life that looks outside of you, that you're not just I, me, myself, the ego self, right? But sustainability today on a practical level for, from where I come from as a fashion journalist, I'm appalled at the amount we consume. We, we consume so much and dispose so much. It's the equivalent of a garbage truck full of clothes that is incinerated, burnt, or goes into a landfill every second. That is equivalent to a one and a half Empire State buildings being filled up with disposed clothes every day. So when you imagine that volume of waste, it begs the question, why is there so much? First, there's too much being made and too much being bought because it's cheap. And then we're disposing after one wear or two wears. But because we're in Indonesia, I need to emphasize because this is a manufacturing hub for the world. The amount that is created is unnecessary. And the rivers and the oceans are getting polluted here because of the excessive manufacturing that is being handled by developed nations. If you look at how what sustainability means and how it impacts people, during COVID, if you see what happened to Bangladesh, just a handful of billion-dollar companies in the affluent world, they just threw away the contracts you know, that they had made in Bangladesh with the factory workers and said, oh, it's COVID, we've canceled the orders. Contracts they canceled, and Bangladesh lost more than two billion U.S. dollars, and they rely on the rag trade. It's the number one part of their economy. And so now the factory workers are not worried about COVID. They're worried about starvation. The fact that there's an entire continent away from Bangladesh can affect the livelihood of factory makers who make T-shirts for us that we buy for $2.55. And we say, it's so damn cheap. I'm going to buy 10 of those. We wear it once and we throw it. It's cheap because somebody else is paying for it. It's cheap to you, but somebody else's life is actually being degraded for that cheapness. So we've got to think about why, why is the price of a t-shirt so cheap when it actually has to travel through five countries before it reaches you? Because the cotton is grown in one country, it's turned into yarn in another country, it becomes textile and cut into t-shirts in another country. Then it reaches, let's say, Indonesia where screen printing is done, and then I can buy it in New York. And, you, and I'm paying $2.55, we've got to put logic into this nonsense as consumers. 
because we are using our hard-earned money to pay for these products. So let's respect our wallet and let's hold these companies. They need to be beholden to a bigger purpose and accountability and transparency. We cannot be consuming at the cost of lives in developing nations like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Indonesia, India. We're talking about this part of the world that makes almost 80% of the clothes for the U.S. market. Yeah, those are some staggering numbers. It's, it's overwhelming. And I think in general, culture hasn't really wrapped its head fully around, you know, the supply chain and, and all the different touch points that a piece of clothing has to travel before it ends up on your body. And if we had a little bit more empathy or education around that, maybe, you know, we would become different types of consumers. And yeah. so one of those crazy statistics that I found um, is that $460 billion in value is thrown away each year because clothes are worn between seven to 10 years. So that's, that's a lot of waste going to what you're saying. Right. And, you know, tying into, you know, this platform that you really helped us understand about becoming a slow consumer by being inspired by Ghani's lessons. First, you know, let's talk about slow consumerism, right? right. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And then second, what advice or guidance would you give to someone who's kind of new to these words and new right. to this way of being and help them transition from a fast fashion mindset into a slower, less wasteful, more empathic and more mindful consumer? The, the easiest way to do is, first of all, don't shop for a while. It's OK. The world won't come to an end if you you know, don't buy for a while, like go on a shopping diet. That's what I tell, especially the young folks, go on a shopping diet, give yourself a break, give the earth a break, give the disposability of things a break. Sit back and think, do you really need that many things? There's a great book called Stuffocation. We are living in a world where we are suffocated by the stuff that we accumulate in our lives, right? But if you want to get deeper into why and how, if you just follow certain principles of how are things made, right? Fashion for far too long put just the image of a beautiful woman in a beautiful garment on a ramp, on a fashion show, and that was the end all and be all of fashion. No one asks the backstory. No one asks the forward story. It's just this image that you fall for and you want it. And the marketeers of the world is like, you see now, buy now. That became the mantra, right? But Media people now should be held accountable as people who are publishing stories, who are storytellers, that you cannot make the entire system invisible anymore. Because for every product that you see, there are hundreds of hands that touch it. There are hundreds of hands that live really far away from your own lives that touch it and sew it. The buttons come from China, the embroidery is done in India. There's so many people involved. So in the love for aesthetics and products, A, we forgot the people. We forgot the real people who make those things with their hands for you, whether it's in a factory or in an artisanal workshop, right? Mm -hmm. So product became the king. We forgot the people. When you forgot the people, we also forgot the process, the amount of time that it takes to make something of beauty. So we started disrespecting the process. We didn't even know why we are buying something that is made beautifully, but we never inquire, how long did it take? 
What does it take to make that carving? What is, we just didn't ask the process. And then what's worst is that we forgot the purpose. Is that purpose to creativity? Is that purpose to fashion? Or do we just continue to believe in beauty for beauty's sake, aesthetic for aesthetic's sake? So there's people, there's processes, there is product, yes, but now with COVID, I think it's imperative that we think about purpose. You have to know that whatever you do in your life, whatever choices that you take, has to make an impact, has to change somebody's life for good. Because, you know, that is ahimsa. That is a nonviolent way of thinking. That is about radiating compassion, even within com- consumerism. Yeah, there's a lot of questions and layers to consider when just going shopping. But as you say, maybe take a diet first and reevaluate what are you really consuming when you buy something or when you wear something? What kind of political and ideological and philosophical statement am I making when I stand with clothes on my body? So, I mean, I'm curious personally, I'm sure other people are too. Um, Like when you go out, right, and let's say you want to go shopping or you want to go buy something new or at least be inspired by new textiles, fabrics, um, makers, artisans. Can you take us through like the journey of bandana shopping? Like what would it be like to go shopping with you considering all these really important questions that you're raising? Yeah, I mean, the fact is, since I've been advocating hashtag shopping diet, I didn't shop for a very long time. Uh, And I was happy with that. I lived in the same clothes. It was perfectly fine. Um, but because we are in COVID times, I am buying things because I am, I want to be supportive of local designers, local artisans. In fact, in the last one and a half months, I bought more than I've got in the last three years, which I'm, which is not to say I'm hoarding. Not, not at all. I'm, I'm buying something that I will value for life. I'm buying something that is local. Um, I'm buying as sustainable as the fabrics and the clothing can be. I completely understand a lot of the brands are going through a journey of sustainability. So they're making incremental changes and we need to celebrate that. Mm. So I've got clothes, shoes, jewelry, ceramics, you name it, made locally to support, to promote and to enjoy. You know, it's important that people recognize the power right now. Of course, we're not going on a shopping spree. Where can you go? Mm. But if you are to buy something now, please buy mindfully. Please uh, buy keeping your community in mind. Keep uh, Keeping in mind that who needs our help right now? Where should my money go fruitfully? And so, yeah, that's how I shop now. I get excited when there are pop-ups happening all over Bali um, because I know that they are all local. So whether it's an artisanal cheese or, you know, a bamboo T-shirt or a piece of jewelry that's handmade, I feel privileged and honored to buy. Mm. Yeah, I see a lot of overlaps in what you're talking about with, for example, shopping at a farmer's market. You know, when you know your farmer, uh, you know, farm to table, these concepts of slow food, it's almost kind of, you know, carrying over into the fashion world. And it's beautiful to see that it's all these transferable ideas, you know, and, and if we can bring that into the space of fashion and clothing, um, we can become even more sustainable within ourselves. Of course. And um, kind of shifting gears a little bit because we've focused a lot on, um, yeah, local economies and how to be a slow consumer. 
um, you know, now you, you consider yourself a lifestyle journalist. So your beat, let's say, covers a more diverse range of topics and people and stories. So in this moment, we can probably agree that we're living online. The world is living online, right? And I would love to know your thoughts um, on, you know, on technology, yeah. specifically AR, augmented reality, VR, virtual reality, and how you feel these tools can help us contribute to fashion in terms of maybe lowering carbon footprint or maximizing our empathy or ahimsa. What is the role technology can play in the future? Right. I, I get really excited about this topic because obviously we're all online and I know that things are going to get accelerated even faster now because we realize technology is the only thing that's really connecting everyone right now. And also for us to have more sustainable practices in the future, perhaps technology can take over to an extent to cut down a lot of the processes that are regressive. So I'll give you an example, for instance. If you're a jewelry designer today, okay, and uh, you're doing your sampling, first of all, just excavating the gold itself is not sustainable. But let's say you're taking repurposed gold to make beautiful bracelets and hair pieces and what have you. You'd be doing a lot of sampling. You'd do the sampling here, then you send it to another country to, for, for whatever reason. There's going to be a lot of back and forth, right? If you're going to use CGI, computer-generated uh, imagery, for instance, and you're going to use your 3D models online, all your sampling now can happen online without having to do use the carbon footprint of sampling. This is just a very small example. Mm-hmm. I know that I have tons of designers who are doing exactly that, and they're just sitting there going, why didn't we do this before? And, you know, why did we waste so much resources? Because mm-hmm. sampling takes up a lot of the resources, especially in fashion, right? Pattern cutting. Most of the waste that comes from clothes is when you cut off the waste from making a t-shirt or a dress or whatever. And so that is just computer generation, generated imagery. But think about virtual reality. One of my favorite virtual reality directors made a film on uh, the children in the Syrian refugees. So it's a VR film. So VR film, like any other film, like you get it's an immersive experience, right? So you watch this film, you are with the children. You are in Syria and war-torn Syria. You are so involved that they notice that the donations for this particular campaign shot up after people watched it as a VR film because the film director himself says VR is the ultimate tool of empathy because all this while you're sympathizing, which always gives you a certain distance between the problem and you, right? I sympathize. When I empathize, I'm wearing your shoes. I feel your pain. So I find VR is going to be incredible for the sustainability journey. Imagine if in the Sitaram River, when the two brothers went on a canoe made out of, you know who I'm talking about, Greg and Sam. Greg lives in Bali. They wanted to bring focus on the Sitaram River, which is the most polluted river in the world. So they built a canoe out of wasted plastic and they sailed down this filthy river and it went viral. People noticed, they saw the filth, and the Indonesian president met them and said, I'm committed to make the Sitaram River the cleanest river in seven years, and he is now employed the Indonesian army to help in the cleanup. 
But that's the impact of these boys creating something on social media and it went viral. Now imagine if there was a VR film and you are on the Citroen River. You are the one standing on a landfill, a mountain of clothes that's going to be burnt, incinerated, that's going to pollute. You are going to be in the middle of it. How can you not be a sustainability activist after being that empathetic and immersed in that situation? So for me, VR is something that I find extremely compelling. And there are uh, companies now like Oculus, which is owned by Facebook now, mm -hmm. uh, where they team up NGOs with uh, VR directors so that they can create films that can highlight mm -hmm. and amplify the messages that only VR can. Wow. Yeah, so I get really excited about that. And then, of course, you've got artificial intelligence, which pretty much, you know, in Japan, um, I know a few designers who lost their jobs because all the trend forecasting is happening because of data. You know, so the data is telling you, guess what? Most of the world wants to wear red and most of the world wants to wear a dress that looks like this. And then your computer generates the dress. So the designer is becoming defunct. So there's a great saying by Lee Edelkut, who's a futurist and a, a, a trend forecaster. She's Danish. She says, you know, one day we'll have to, and that's not very far. When you look at your tag, it'll, have, it'll, be, it'll say made by man. <laughs> because a lot of it is going to happen through machine. So it's a double-edged sword. Mm. So all the more reason why we should value what can only be made by hand. And that's why the, the economies and the cultures of countries like India and Indonesia and most of Asia is so important because we've always been a made-by-hand culture. And so we need to resurrect that alongside technology. Let technology develop. Hopefully it will help more people than harm them. But we need to com continue to amplify the made-by-hand uh, culture that always was part of our heritage. Wow, yeah. It's, it's always that balance, right? Empathy for the people who, you know, we want to keep employed for their livelihood, but also thinking about the environment and how to keep you know, carbon emissions and just pollution down through all this traveling just so a garment is made. So, yeah, you raise a good point of balancing the two. Um, and I guess since you are so passionate about technology as a, as a tool for helping to solve so many of our current problems environmentally and planetarily, if you could dream up some kind of VR project with an NGO or like a local um you know, made by hand economy, especially being in Bali, because we have access to a lot of these types of communities. Could you dream up a sort of project that you would personally be so excited, passionate and invested to bring forth to the world? Yeah, I would. I mean, there are many. <laughs> there are many, but I've always wanted to do a project where um, I'm a, I love textiles. I love anything made by hand. Um, I grew up. You know, my mother was collecting saris that were from different regions of India, all were made by hand. You have to sit on the floor and throw that garment in front to see how it rolls out in the sunshine, drinking a ginger chai. You have to touch and you have to feel. You sat on the floor. The whole experience of loving fabric for me came from that. And I would love to do a project where I always thought about this, but now with this VR angle, I'm, I'm rethinking 
you know, if you look at all the countries that are at war or have had historical differences, <clears throat> political differences, they're pretty much mostly neighbors. India and Pakistan, Palestine, Israel problem, North Korea, South Korea. I mean, you just Google it, the list come, goes on and on, right? <clears throat> so I thought I would love to do a project where there is this virtual exchange of the most beautiful fabrics and customs of made by hand between designers from from countries that have historically fought with each other and they create what I would say, I don't want them to do a collection and all that, a beautiful high-end museum quality jacket that would be called the Ahimsa jacket after Gandhi's non-violence and you could just, I could just populate different countries to do this. Mm -hmm. I've done similar projects in the past but imagine in, in a year you could have like 24 jackets made by countries that are, have been fighting and but we are going to show you what cultural exchange and love can do and how that boundary doesn't matter because if you cross over from Pakistan to India you won't even know the difference because the customs are the same right mm. people look the same mm. and so yeah now how could we take that into a virtual territory I'm, I'm sort of thinking it up wow <laughs> yeah it's transforming geopolitical conflict into yeah, bringing us back to our roots, which are so human and shared and beyond all these constructs that we've created yeah, over time. time to revisit what, what do boundaries and borders mean. One minute it was all globalized. You could zip from one country to the other. You could be in three places, you know, within hours. And now suddenly boundaries seem quite rigid, right? Something that is actually tangible, mm. that I can't cross a country. So I think it's a great time to visit and revisit what subconsciously this means to us. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a whole other talk that maybe we can have another time. But yeah, kind of zooming out a little bit into culture more broadly. If you can think about this time that we're in right now, what do you feel are the ways in which culture, and you can speak about culture in Bali because this is your present reality or culture more globally. What are the ways that culture needs to shift in order for us to collectively usher a sustainable um, mindset in fashion and beyond? The more I think about it, and because I'm in fashion, I'm going to keep it as focused within the realm that I understand best is that all the regressive systems that we were indoctrinated into, mm. that you have to have seasonal fashion, which means you have to make that many collections, that much more in excess. There are designers sitting in Paris and Milan who are doing 16 collections in a year. It is burnout. And then you create all that luxury inventory, and because you don't want to sell it at a discount or you don't want to flood the market with cheaper goods of what they call legacy brands, they would burn millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of clothes just so there's a sense of scarcity, even though it's in abundance, right? So all those systems have to change. The fallacy that fashion constantly taught us is there's the man, there's the woman. Women shows, men shows, that's gender. They divided it to the point where millennials today have shown us, you know what? It doesn't matter. Gender doesn't exist. It's a social construct and they can choose who they want to be. And that shift is happening because of millennials and post-millennials who don't give a rat's ass in all honesty to define themselves like our parents did 
what a woman should do and what a man do. Fashion told us constantly, a woman must look like this. Now, going from gender, let's talk about feminism. <clears throat> or just the fact, as a woman, we were told, and I did it because I worked in the fashion industry, I had to be five different types of women in a day. When I went to work, I had to look a certain part. If I had to go pick up my child from school, I had to look a certain part. Then if I had to go for a boardroom meeting, I had to look a certain part. Then a cocktail party, I had to look a certain part, sit down, dinner, a certain part. And I had to buy that much more to keep feeding into this very schizophrenic personality <laughs> that had to be fed constantly. In one day, we had to keep consuming more and more to look more and more different. And who was defining this? The men sitting in the the boards, the top management, the owners of all these fashion conglom conglomerates, you know, 90% of them are men who are dictating to a market that is actually run by women. Most consumers of the fashion business are women. So all that, that these are fallacies that we and I take for responsibility because I was one of those very writers who kept saying, black is the new black. <laughs> you know, blue is the new black. I mean, how many times did I do that? And so it's, it's time that we change that narrative because it's all the fault lines have opened up. It's brutally clear now what does not work. Mm -hmm. So you can't just talk about clothes and consumption now based on, oh, it's just clothes or it's a product or an artifact. It involves everything. It involves fair wages. It involves equality of genders. It involves human rights. And it is about human rights and poorer countries are becoming poorer because the contracts are being taken away by affluent countries. It's a human rights issue. Mm. When most of the clothes are made by women who don't have the protection of insurance, health, uh, you know, social systems that work for them, then it's a gender issue because most of the clothes are made by women. So we shouldn't look at things that we buy just for what it is. There's so much storytelling. There's such a narrative of pain and joy that we need to be very cognizant about. Mm, there's a whole world behind everything that you wear. And, you know, you raised um, within the identity politics about LGBTQ representation in fashion. And I would love to know, you know, especially now, what burning questions do you sit with? now and you can even talk about you know lgbtq representation in culture in fashion but that have surfaced for you during these covid times questions that you wake up thinking questions that you think about before going to bed that you still don't have the answers to that you would like to share as um yeah yeah food for i'm thought. a big 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 champion and activist for lgbtq rights you know we fought a lot in india to make sure that a uh, terrible uh, policy that exists from the British times was repealed and now homosexuality is not illegal. And um, it was great, it was amazing for our country. The thing with fashion and any creative industry, if you look at it, a lot of the creative juice, the creative swag comes from the LGBT community. You've seen that in fashion, especially, whether you're a stylist, a makeup artist, a hairstylist, designers, designers, creative teams, they were all mostly from the LGBT community. Um, so what we did, which is very much what happened with uh, the idea of being black in America, where culturally appropriating the coolness of certain communities 
and taking it onto the ramp and owning it, but without giving anything back to the community, that's cultural appropriation, right? So I feel with the LGBT community, there's creative appropriation. We took a lot of the fun and the drama and the bravado of this community, but we never ever represented them well in any of the magazines. In fact, we would do magazines, when I say we as a collectively as publishers in the world, you know, you'd say, oh, this is um, celebrating gender issue, right? And they would put a man who's straight, but who looks effeminate, implying that he's gay. Why wouldn't you just put a gay man there as a representative? You know what I mean? Yeah. In India, we would, uh, for instance, there was a cover where we did, we said, oh, this is an uh, issue all about fluidity, gender fluidity, which basically means you should be talking about trans fashion, you should be talking about what really you mean by gender fluidity, right? Instead, we take a Bollywood actor who is straight as a doornail, put him in a skirt, and then we talk about gender fluidity. Now, that is hypocrisy to the core because there are enough amazing people who have the right to be on the cover as a gender fluid person, authentic in his or her journey, instead of propping up a Bollywood star who wouldn't even be able to spell gender, put him in a skirt. And so that becomes hypocritical, facetious. And so for, for me, when you say what's the burning question, this is a time for authentic representation. You want to talk mm. about diversity and put diverse people from diverse cultures, but make it authentic. You can't give someone an Afro hairstyle because you want to have black representation. Get the black guy with the Afro and put him on, on the picture. So that kind of appropriation needs to end. And it's happening. It's happening because now with social media, anyone sitting in pajama in a house can call you out for the bullshit that you're putting out, right? Mm because you're just one degree separation now from anyone, any designer, even that horrible Donald Trump. Yes. I mean, anyone can now tweet out what you think is disrespectful to their community or to them individually. So yeah, we need to really perk up, be aware. I think it's, it's a great time to like really sit back and think, what are we saying? What are we doing? How mm. are we representing ourselves in a wider world of diversity? authentic representation. I love it. I think it's so applicable, of course, in fashion and in these cultures that you're pointing out, but just everywhere. And, you know, as we come to a close, I just want to add more things, you know, centering back on Bali, this beautiful, abundant, biodiverse island that we're so privileged to live on. How has being in Bali, I mean, you've been living here for many, many years, but specifically during COVID times, helped has helped or is still helping of course you do the important work of building activism within yourself so that you can show up um more aware more conscious and more in service of your community and the planet right well i've been here for four years i would i wish i could say 14 years but i've been here for four years and very gratefully so um i think for all of us, it's just not, not just me. I think all of us know what it is to live sustainably because of COVID, because we're eating better, because we're mostly eating at home, right? Because not, not much is open. We're not shopping much, you know. We're not changing our clothes five times a day. Um, I mean, Bali is still different, but think about the rest of the world. We're living so sustainably. We don't want too much right now. 
frugality works. Mm. There's no need. Like even for the for the love of money, even if I have five yachts, what would I do now, right now? Even if I wanted to buy the biggest diamond, do I really want it now? Like for what reason? Mm. So we know what it is to live frugally, and frugal doesn't mean that you don't enjoy your life, that you don't buy the things that you like, mm. but you're not living an excessive life mm. and a wasteful life. What I value during this time very much, which perhaps got sort of amplified, is that I so value the friends. You know, that, that emotional sustenance was so important. And I'm not saying that I reach out to everyone, but I so value the few that have nurtured me and hopefully I've nurtured them. And, you know, this is going to be a time of great mental illness because people are struggling, people will continue to struggle. We are lucky because we are outdoors. Can't imagine being stuck in a box in Hong Kong or in Manhattan. And so I think having, I feel so grateful and privileged because I have these friends to rely on. Because of money, there's nothing that I could do, you know, to have these friends if I weren't a genuine person myself. So these are the realizations that I live by and I hope I will continue to live by. And I don't think I'm alone in how I feel because I look around. I think everyone feels the same way. Mm, Beautiful. And just one last thing, if you could leave our audience with one final message or question uh, to reflect on beyond this conversation, keep it short and sweet as well. What would that be? Um, Well, my little message is always Please believe in compassionate fashion because we will need to always prop up an industry where there are manufacturers, makers, creators. We don't want this beautiful machinery uh, to end because it employs millions and millions of people. But when you start thinking about compassionate fashion, then you think about where you're putting your money and hopefully you put it in the right places and it goes into the right hands, the many invisible hands. Mm. Oh, thank you so much, Bandana. I am just marinating in your wisdom (laughs) and your stories and the work that you're doing just by being you, but also in the messages that you're spreading to build this more regenerative and healthier yeah, reality that we're walking through. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So awesome. Yes. And thank you for watching. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Bye. The Alt Normal. Thanks for tuning in to The Alt Normal. I'm your host, Tiffany Wen. And this show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of dig, seed, grow.